0: Welcome to the Edge of NFT podcast with your hosts Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. We aim to bring you not only the top 1% of what's going on with NFTs today, but what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, but also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things that we love. This podcast is for the futurists and dreamers, the disruptors and creators, the fans and connectors, and the makers and doers that are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Welcome to the Edge of NFT podcast with your hosts Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. We aim to bring you not only the top 1% of what's going on with NFTs today, but also what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the futurists and dreamers, the disruptors and creators, the fans and connectors, and the makers and doers that are pumped about this ecosystem
1: and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features guest Emma Jane McKinnon Lee, founder and CEO of Digitalax, the first digital fashion NFT protocol and marketplace for gaming and esports. Digitalax is building native Web3 infrastructure for supporting the entire digital-only fashion, digi-physical fashion supply chain, incentivized ecosystems for designers, developers, players earn new livelihoods through casual esports and also developing the first truly interoperable 3D file transfer format using native crypto and NFT incentive models for enabling a flourishing open source developer bazaar, a dynamic cross-platform format for the metaverse. Emma Jane has worked in the deepest corners of crypto, from options trading and crypto hedge funds to being appointed by the Dubai government to develop blockchain use cases across the financial, transportation, trade and logistic, tourism and real estate sectors. And what are you, 22 or something? How old are you now? 22. So that's kind of unimaginable. But it's really great to have you on the program.
2: Thank you for inviting me on.
1: You have been busy. All right. So
0: we have to start here with your college years. Okay. Did we get this right? You were literally studying to be a rocket scientist and building race cars in college. And you're just like, nah, this stuff's too boring. Let me go disrupt the entire world of blockchain instead.
2: I mean, it's kind of accurate. So I was studying engineering at school and, and space engineering. I've always loved space. I think everyone, you know, you grow up kind of with this like aura, about space. And I've always wanted to, and I still do want to kind of go to space and and be an astronaut and whatever kind of form that looks like. So I started with that and that was in Australia at the University of Sydney. And I was also part of the FSAE team, which is like the engineering F1 team. So it's like a kind of university college competition and it's global and you build an F1 car and then it's raced against all the other colleges, you know, globally and and worldwide. So I was part of that team and, and one of the only or first, actually first year female engineer to be chosen for that. So I was doing some really interesting stuff, but my personality is someone that, you know, I'm not kind of a status quo or or someone that likes to be put in like in a framework or a system. And yeah, I just really knew that although there's great stuff that you can learn at school and, and college, very different from the real world and really what I wanted to achieve in my life, which was always having this much bigger mission of how can I bring value to you know millions of people and what does that look like and so when i came across web3 and and blockchain and crypto i really saw wow this is the future and and this is where stuff's going and i need to do something in it. i need to kind of build in this space so yeah it was kind of it wasn't like a a easy decision i would say because i had a lot going on but it was like an inevitable thing i don't think i ever really thought that i would be finishing my college year so much to my parents dismay
1: i bet parents yeah I had a question here. It's a really basic question. Maybe easy to answer, maybe not. The name of the business, where does that come from? Like, why did you decide on that name? Does it have a significance or did it just kind of sound great? What are your thoughts on that?
2: So, yeah, I mean, I was in Dubai, actually, when I, I started Digitalet, in a sense, and kind of bringing everything together. And I wouldn't say that it was kind of very, you know, there's a huge backstory to it. But I wanted something that sounded cool, definitely sounded, you know, this like hybrid digital in a sense. And it had that as like a really cool component. And then I guess the AX, I really, I can't remember like too much of the story, but I just remember I was sitting in kind of the office where I was in Dubai and thinking of different names and and kind of wanting to have that digital part to it. And then I was like, oh, okay, well, the X is really cool. And, you know, having it just digital X is a bit, you know, not right, or it's too common in a sense. So I put in the A and then I was like, well, that's it now. I'm kind of stuck with it because I'm talking to people about it. So yeah. And then it just stuck.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own.
2: Exactly.
3: So how did your educational background and prepare you for building what you're building now? And how did you address the gaps in knowledge that you've needed with direct education and the types of folks that you needed to bring together to create this venture?
2: Yeah. So I would say to kind of break it down more, I mean, I've always been someone that, as I said, I never kind of accept the frame that's given to me. And I've always loved, you know, being a a female as well and and really loving math and physics. It's quite rare because usually, you know, we don't, we see, I mean, even in engineering school, it was heavily male dominated. And so even when I went into space engineering, I was told that because of the subjects that I chose in high school in Australia, that they would never accept me, that I would never be able to get in. And I took that and I said, well, no way. I know exactly what I'm capable of and I'm going to prove you all wrong. And that's what I did. I ended up kind of, it's a process where you have to actually get accepted. You don't just kind of go in, you've got to achieve certain marks in in really difficult subjects. And so I went in and then I just gave it my all and I, I proved them all wrong and I got accepted. So I guess, yeah, taking that same framework when I was booting DigitalX, it's not so much about, well, you know, what are the gaps or, or what do I don't know, but it's how could I look at the situation differently and just break everything down into base principles because. That's really what I find when I talk to a lot of people. It's always that thing, well, how do I get in? Like even NFTs, how do I get into a space when I I don't have this or I'm not really sure about that? And every day I can tell you that I have problems put in front of me where I'm like, I've never experienced it before. I I don't know, you know, there's no textbook that I can go to and kind of read off and say, well, let's take this formula and apply it here and then we'll, you know, get why as our outcome. It's never really been like that. And so it's more just really making sure to have an approach of an open mind that, you know, I know it sounds very cliche, but it is the truth that if you kind of go in with the mindset of, okay, well, I've been put in this box or because I studied this or, you know, someone else in society has framed me as being good at this, but not as that, then I should accept that frame. But if you go in and you think, well, hold on, you know, at the end of the day, it's just a problem. It's just a puzzle. And if you can break down and identify what are the pieces and then slowly just start putting together then it can be solved. And I've always kind of had that mindset. And and it's been really great because it it hasn't been been this blockage of stopping me where I think, well, you know, okay, well, because I I didn't study that specific thing, or I I don't know that topic really well, which is even, you know, an engineering side, DigitalX is really focused on also the engineering. How do we innovate from not just a, a business or commercial perspective, but really from the engineering side. And so we have an amazing internal engineering team where we're pioneering and pushing new open source code out there every day and myself I don't have a direct you know coding background in solidity or you know react and, and kind of these web3 based languages but it's going in more and knowing okay well there's different ways that you can look at it and solve the problem and then if you have surround yourself with the right people as well there's always a, a solution that can come out of that
0: And it's a massive undertaking that you're building here. We gave some background on it for our listeners, but would love to know where your current vision for the company stands.
2: So yeah, it's definitely a big vision. And how I like to describe it is we're really building out an ecosystem. So a lot of projects, when they come into the space, they think, okay, well, I'm going to just focus on this niche area and really hone in on that and then deploy products or services or whatever around that area. But coming into perspective of knowing what the space is at the moment, and where it needs to go. It's really what DigitalX is focused upon is how do we build out the infrastructure layer? How do we build out the really low-level core protocol layers? So instead of it being from a perspective, okay, we're coming in and how do we generate value for ourselves, but rather how can we create an ecosystem that eventually anyone can plug into and start creating value? And that's always really been the mindset. It's kind of like the old Uber model, how I like to describe it, where the reason why you know, Uber was kind of such a success. I mean, people can look at it and they can say, well, it's a really great UX on the the app. And then you go a layer deeper and you could say, oh, well, you know, it's super convenient. I can just log in and I can get to a destination anywhere in the world, you know, within a couple of minutes. And then if you go really a step deeper, I mean, why Uber was kind of so successful was because what it really allowed, it gave people freedom. That's really, they, they kind of sold freedom in a sense, where if you were a driver, immediately now you could gain access to a live market and value at any time. You didn't have to kind of conform to these schedules or go to like a nine to five job. Then same from kind of the consumer point of view, you were also allowed freedom and convenience and you were matching kind of this whole marketplace together. And I know Uber's changed very much now, and there's a lot of caveats. It's not really just as simple as that, but breaking it down into that base, it was really what I wanted to transfer into digital exit. And it's what Web3 and, and Ethereum and, and the whole crypto ecosystem is all about as well. It's it's about breaking down walls and barriers to have more savvy doorways into opportunities that can suit each of us best. And we're really focused on doing that from the fashion, gaming and kind of esports sector or really, I mean, that itself encompasses what we, when we think about the metaverse, players and creators, and how do we create a player-creator economy? So where we're at now, I mean, we started with our marketplace built on Ethereum. And that was really all about just looking at how do we even you know, create distribution channels for digital fashion? What does it look like to back value behind digital fashion goods? Because before then, there really wasn't anyone doing anything in the space from looking at it from the perspective, okay, how do you build the industry? It was more advertising or just used within um, specific points of like a creator's design process with a 3D modeling point of view. So we looked at more from, okay, well, If there is going to be a whole global supply chain for digital fashion or even hybrid digital physical, there needs to be a way to transparently track that and then also back value behind it. So NFTs, having my background in in Web3, it just made the absolute most sense and hugely scalable distribution channel. So we started with the marketplace, partnering with over 30 digital fashion designers globally. Some were based from the US and ex-Nike designers in Portland, others in Europe, Rwanda, Australia. They created these really cool designs. They listed them on our mark and then we sold them at auction as digital fashion NFTs. And they also had DeFi and staking functionalities as well. So that was how we started and, and also doing really interesting things from a supply chain point of view when it comes to how do you break down and modularize the composability opponents of NFTs and allow designers to actually issue patterns and materials and textures as ERC-1155 tokens. And then other designers can create or use these patterns in their master garment and issue a ERC 721, but on chain that can actually be kind of absolutely tracked from the, the minute level where a 721 is able to actually own balances of the patterns and materials and textures in the 1155 tokens. And that brings completely new monetization and royalty distributions for the artists. So we started looking at that side and then we moved into the gaming integration because I'm very much a believer that just the cosmetic side, particularly in fashion, it's not enough. There has to be utility. There has to be a way to interact with the product. And at the moment gaming, VR, these kind of immersive 3D environments is where that exists. So then we launched our ESPA, which is the first Indian modded esports platform, allowing our players, designers, and developers to plug in, use our outfits and our digital fashion designs as this whole authentication system within the gaming environments that they go into to engage in casual esports battles where the players can actually uh, start earning a livelihood and an income for themselves as well as they engage in these kind of gaming environments. So I'll stop there because I know that was an yes. extremely long tangent, but yeah, that's kind of the, the broader overview.
0: So you're literally talking about so people being able to buy digital fashion, any kind of like outfit, any kind of like maybe your shirt or something that maybe is even branded potentially, right? And then not just be able to own that and hold that as an NFT, but also be able to use that in a gaming environment, for example. How do you connect, I guess, the portability of that from your side and the digital act side, say the marketplace where you purchase it so that it can actually be used in that gaming environment? So like a, yeah. Is there a common like format that people are using that would enable that or is it something you're developing?
2: So there's two parts to that. I mean, when people talk about interoperability and being able to take assets or content cross-platform, because that's really when we think about the metaverse, we always think about it being kind of like the seamless digital experience. From a technical point of view at the moment, that is not solved. And that comes down to these the file formats themselves that you can't just build, say, a garment or anything in one 3D application, say like Houdini or, or Maya, and then take that into, say, like a game engine like Unity or Unreal and just drag and drop it and have it work or take something from Fortnite into GTA, it just really doesn't work at the moment. And so DigitalX, we're approaching that problem in two ways. Number one, we actually are building out our own 3D file format that is really based on having dynamic interoperability across different 3D application environments. And I can definitely go into more details about how we're doing that. It's a whole engineering process where it's about how do you actually take the logical information from the output environment or the final location of where a 3D object is going to be deployed so how could a 3D object know that it's going into an environment say like Fortnite, and then be able to be dynamically kind of transformed so that the key information retained is then compatible to that Fortnite environment even if it's coming from originally an environment like GTA we're building out that whole system but that's still you know it's an engineering process it needs to be built there needs to be R&D around and it's really what we're focused on at the moment and so in the meantime how we're tackling these kind of interoperability problems or how do you take them cross-platform I and mean, we are building out our whole own SDK and kind of within experts our own SDK where there's these kind of user authentication they get their assets spawned into the game and we have APIs and full integration on that side but that's not enough by itself because we all know that you can't just kind of go to a game and knock on the door and say hey accept my content they'll just tell you a lot of these you know larger studios as well they'll just tell you well sorry that doesn't fit within us at the moment.
3: Yeah. I mean, that was going to be one of my next questions is how is the industry responding to your big adventures and how are gamers responding, right? Like you have a marketplace situation, so you have multiple customers and You know, in Twitch, like you got to wonder what they're thinking, too, in terms of what they're going to do in this space versus where they want to integrate. So you decided to start with something really simple and straightforward.
2: Yeah. Well, look, I guess that's what it is. I mean, the whole thing comes down to incentives. How do you kind of direct incentives or how do you create an ecosystem that incentivizes the right stakeholders? And this is why, you know, we built native to Web3 and Ethereum as well, because you can't do with Web2, you cannot build ecosystems of incentives that really program uh, customizable value to the different stakeholders. It just doesn't work. But within crypto, you can. And we have our own token, Token, and within our ecosystem, it really that's what it's about. It's about directing incentives. So how it works within ESPA is a player can come on our marketplace, purchase these digital fashion items that are designed by different designers as NFTs, and then take them into these different gaming or content environments. The NFT itself and that uh, digital fashion item is spawned in under their character. And as they're playing, they're getting scored on a leaderboard, and they're actually being able to get paid out and get income streams from engaging in these casual esports battles. So it's a whole different sector as well that we're tackling, is how do you allow a gamer or a player to go from amateur to pro, which you mentioned kind of platforms like Twitch. It's incredibly hard for these streamers to actually make a proper livelihood and career. So we're also about breaking that down is how do you allow democratized access for players into the industry to really create value from from just playing, uh, from engaging in play. And then from a profit distribution side, how that works is the profits from the sales of the NFTs on the marketplace, they get split between the designers actually creating the garments and then also the developers as well. that are accepting these content pieces or these fashion pieces into their games. And the unique part about that is we're not actually intruding on a developer's current in-game economy. So they still are really encapsulating the value there. But what we are providing is a, a layer two utility for them. And that is where the the esports utility comes in and this kind of well-defined use case where it's an extra additional novelty for the players. And really, I guess, providing a different roadmap for a player base when it's that whole purpose of going from amateur to pro and how do they level up their own careers. So Can that's we- really how we've navigated it.
3: Have you talked to any of the big esports leagues or organizations, you know, like Phase Clan, about what you're doing? Can you give us a little sense of how they've responded, maybe hints of the strategic partnerships you got cooking up?
2: Sure. No, so it's a good question. And really, we went about it from two ways. Number one, I'm very much someone that, how do I say, pioneers for the underdogs. And, you know, I really think that that's why the NFT industry is so unique in a sense, because it's all about, well, how do you give direct value to undervalued creators? How do you actually give a voice back to them? And this is really what we focused on here at Esper as well, is focusing on the indie community when it comes to the game development side, and then also the modding community, because they're a huge backbone to the industry that is really overlooked. And a lot of people don't you know, even know about the modding community or how the biggest players, in a sense, and biggest player bases, they're all part of that whole ecosystem so we really focused on that side to start with to give that voice there and also it's just part of our own messaging and story that we want to, to have that as the backbone it's not about just giving the keys back to the legacy leaders in the space or you know the legacy industries that create all these walled gardens because we're wanting to break that down and that's really the purpose so how do we give it back and distribute the value to other core backbones in the industry which is very much the modding and the indie side and then when it comes to the esports side, so again, we're really focused on the average player. How can they come in? Not just on you know, the professional players now who already have the value, but how can we allow you know, a player sitting in his basement to go from amateur to pro? How do we give them a tool in their hand to actually really have access to that rather than them thinking, well, this is impossible. I've either got to just slave away on Twitch for 24 hours and hope to get picked up, which that's a lottery ticket, or I give up and I just kind of get an adult or normal job So it was really about that side. But as we've been growing, uh, we've been definitely getting more traction and we've been getting a lot of reach out from some of these esports teams and players that are are seeing the value there because they're also understanding that, well, within their current situation, it really is. It's like the music industry in a sense They're they're taken under an agency. They're asked to slave away for hours in a day and then they're kind of shipped out and new players come in. And they're they're losing that love and that passion of what they originally had for gaming and why they went into it for the first place. So that's also what Esper is about. It's about providing them another opportunity where they can start creating value and they don't have to have that middleman walled garden or lock point or choke point there. So yeah, as we've grown, it's definitely been, you know, a big hustle on our side and getting our name out there and getting onto these player bases. But we've been starting to pick up a lot between the modding communities and the other core active player bases and esports players as well along that because we were doing integrations with CSGO and their mods and they have a huge professional player base as well. So that's been something really exciting within all of this.
3: So what's your game of choice? You have a race car background. Are you a racing style gamer? Are we going to see, you know, some sort of rockin' racing uniform that you're wearing in the Metaverse playing a game on this portal that you're creating? What's the real deal here?
2: Well, actually myself i actually prefer platformers i love like 2d or or 3d platformers like even sonic i've always loved that i'm more of a sonic than a a mario person but i mean games like rocket league we've actually been in touch with with some of them and their team and that's like a huge you know base when you think about things so definitely you will be seeing yeah i guess race car kind of esports battles or casual esports battles under our platform as well that will be coming definitely
3: all right, so I actually played Sonic the Hedgehog quite a lot, guys. I don't know, if Jeff or Ethan, if you guys were into that game.
1: A little bit, but yeah, it sounds like more. you were more so than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get wiped with, <laughs> wiped the floor by Emma Jane
0: for sure. You know what? It's interesting. You mentioned like for the average player, you know, the opportunity essentially to become their own sponsor, right? If they do something great performance wise, or like so often happens, did say something cool during a live stream, right? And people like latch onto that, it becomes a meme or something. It sounds like there's then an opportunity there for them to sell maybe an item that they purchased that they were wearing or their character was wearing during that moment, right? Yeah. And I was curious, like, so how does the beyond just the ability to sell what they've purchased for maybe a, an increased price, are there royalties that potentially players would have access to as well?
2: Yes. Yeah, so this is where, you know, why as well, digital fashion is so core to all of this. It's because it's not just from the self-expression side of, okay, how does a player have this online or digital identity and how can they express that through their, their digital garments or their clothing? But more than that, definitely the, the functionality side comes down to it. And this is really what we're focused on. So to break more about, break more down, like how fashion actually fits into this whole ecosystem from more of it an intrinsic level and at that core. Well, it's not just that the players take the outfits and wear them in game, but now that they are, like you said, they're able to own that content, which means they can actually kind of attach moments in time to it or like their best plays to that fashion item as well, and then sell that off, which is something incredibly interesting when we think about what is kind of blockchain and gaming and how does that intersect or being able to attach, yeah, key moments in a game or key kind of historical memories to an NFT or to an item. And then that definitely accrues more value over time for the players. They're able to interact with that content and then gain value from that afterwards. But within our system as well, the rarity level of the content also affects how the player's longevity lasts within our whole esports platform. So from a common to a semi-rare to, say, an exclusive one-of-one item, That It's not a pay to win at all because we really don't believe in that, but it's more that the actual rarity level affects how often maybe a player needs to recharge their outfit within our system to then be eligible for more battles or depending on how they've kind of leveled themselves up on a leaderboard or a winning streak, they might need to go back and complete other tasks within the system for more of a game base to then recharge their outfit or go back to the marketplace and and kind of swap it out for something else. So we have all of that functionality within that as well. And that kind of adds, I guess, more value into the NFTs and what you know it's being used for, which is not just that cosmetic side. So it's about bridging that. And then also our NFTs have staking and DeFi composability, or not sorry, not composability, but functionality as well, where a player can actually take this and then stake it and earn our token on our staking contract. So they're able to, yeah, gain even additional value within the ecosystem.
0: One of the things we've been super excited about and we're watching a few different companies work on is the fractionalization of NFTs. And it occurs to me that, you know, an outfit that somebody has on in a certain moment could have, you know, tremendous value and could have a lot of people interested in it. Maybe I think about like the Jimi Hendrix moment where he's like smashing his guitar, right? And people want to own pieces of that guitar. Same thing here, right? If somebody does something really cool in a moment and that particular outfit is popular, I think people would want potentially to own pieces of that garment, if you will. Is fractionalization of NFT something you guys have looked at on the roadmap or anything in that realm?
2: Yeah. So we haven't done anything yet when it comes to, I guess, what people think about, I know there's like the sharding of the NFTs and it's breaking even down to like ERC-20 representations of, of different parts of it. But what we did pioneer is the term of fractionalized garment ownership. And how that works is what I've kind of describing before, where designers are able to come on and issue these 1155 materials, patterns, and textures that are then open source into our digital libraries on chain and another designer can come and use those within the creation of the master garment. But that actually creates what's called an ERC 998 standard, or it's a variant of that on-chain, where the 721 uh, owns a collection of the 1155 kind of fractional components. And that's not just royalties from an outer side, but when that's transferred to the buyer, they're able to also own those different fractional components as well. So potentially, they could also you know, sell off, say, an individual pattern as part of the, the garment. And this is really interesting. And another part that we're bridging in, which is the digital fashion sponsorship side, which is kind of what you were talking about before is, okay, well, how, what's another way that a player could actually on an income stream or living through this? Well, just like in the professional kind of traditional physical sports industry, a lot of players, they get their main income and support through sponsorships from brands. Well, the same thing we're bringing into ESPA where players are able to actually level themselves up and then get sponsorships from the larger fashion brands that were actually onboarding into the ecosystem as well. So there's huge other monetization models there, which I guess adds more value, say within a moment. It could be like, you know, a Gucci top or a sense or even a Gucci pattern as part of a broader outfit that the player is able to sell off or get guess gain support from.
0: So digital fashion grew from the world of sustainability and all the waste, the massive waste, which most people don't know in textiles. How does that guide your thinking? you know, day in and day out, or does it have a major influence?
2: Yeah, no, it's an incredibly good question because, I mean, there's a lot of controversy around, I guess, NFTs and sustainability for the environment. I know that there's, you know, been masses of articles released and kind of Twitter wars where certain people are taking stands and saying, well, Ethereum's proof of work consensus algorithm goes against the, you know, pursuit as well as a broader economy that we, we reach greater sustainability. And yeah, it's a hard situation because digital fashion, like you said, that's where its main kind of origins came out of was how do you actually bring more sustainability to fashion because it is the most, fashion is the most or second most wasteful industry in the world after oil. So that kind of says a lot. It's absolutely kind of horrendous when you look at some of the numbers, particularly the supply chain point of view, just the waste in fabrics, dyeing of materials and how this kind of industry of fast fashion, which... Zara very much is at the forefront of, just turns over way too much waste. And so how we're bridging that is, I mean, there's two parts to this. Number one, it's about what can we do now? And what we have done, we've actually migrated everything or all of our kind of ecosystem to Matic Network. And that's a layer two solution for Ethereum. And that runs on proof of state consensus. So it's 99% more energy efficient and, and less wasteful than Ethereum. So really that's where we're at now, but we also see it from the point of view that, you know, you can't just stop the growth of an entire economy and ecosystem and the value that it is bringing to creators globally. And you kind of shut that down and say, well, because NFTs and the minting of it might be causing some contribution to the energy kind of waste within the environment, which there's industries out there that contribute way more in, in terms of wastefulness. And they have been for hundreds of years. And we haven't really, you know, solved that yet. So we've also got to weigh it up and say, well, we can't just, you know, stop the growth of something. And it comes with the growing pains of being on the bleeding edge of an industry that you can't solve everything at once. You know, like it wouldn't have made sense if we just said, well, when Henry Ford invented the car, you know, let's stop all of that and let's stop global transportation and travel and and invention of propulsion engines when we, because this is affecting something else. It just doesn't make sense. But now we can see that, okay, with Tesla, for example, that's completely pioneering sustainable travel. And that's an amazing you know, new industry that's come out of all of this. So it's the same thing that I think with fashion and NFTs, it's about, we definitely are pioneering the sustainability point of view and how can digital fashion solve those core problems within the fashion industry? And how can we do our part today, which is like integrations with Matic Network, which we're really pioneering engineering on that side. We actually released the first ever multi-token bridge between Matic and Ethereum, which allows People that buy our NFTs with this kind of ERC98 variant to actually bridge them between the networks, which is a huge engineering feat for the entire ecosystem. But also, yeah, we understand that, okay, there might be some growing pains with the use of NFTs at the moment, but it is so integral to what we're pioneering that we can't, yeah, just completely suppress that for the, the broader pursuit.
1: So I'm let's say I'm an artist, a digital artist or, you know, esports player or just somebody who wants to support the company what are the ways that people get involved? You know, what's the first step? Is there a link to click or a place to go or a thing to sign up for? How does that onboarding work?
2: I guess there's a few ways. If you're a designer or you're an artist, the first thing is, is that we do have a global designer network where we're onboarding new designers all the time to come in and be part of our design network actually creating these digital fashion designs. And we've been, I guess, really comprehensive in the way that we've onboarded artists because we're not a super rare or a rareable or an open sea where it's kind of just let anyone come in and increase the supply we've always been trying to do it in a way that makes sure that these artists when they do come on board or these designers there's really that core market that we're building up and it started with more the nft collectible side and now it's moving really into the player base as we, we bring in more utility so that's one side and that's really just we have kind of different um sign-ups on our websites and that where designers can come on and, and be part of it. From a player base where we're actively onboarding new players all the time. We're running esports, these casual esports tournaments also out of our Discord every day. And we have, you know, really a lot of players coming on board and engaging in battles and being able to earn value. So that's very simple as well. That's just kind of joining our Discord or again kind of signing up, but just being part of our community and being present. And we really help with the onboarding of the players as well, whether that's getting them set up with kind of these hybrid Web2, Web3 wallets to yeah to streamline a lot of the scariness that comes with just coming into NFTs and crypto and thinking like, what the heck is this? How do I even get involved? And then from the developer side as well, we have a really strong base within the modding community and the indie dev scene as well. So there's always new developers that we're integrating with and, and coming on board there. And then more broadly, I guess, if you know, one of those categories. So let's say I'm,
1: like, I'm a developer, I want to start doing some right. modding. Do you have like an API page? Yeah. or something? How do I um, access so that information?
2: Not, it's not at that stage at the moment. So it's really about you work with our dev team. So we tell you, we take on a lot of the integration as well for the developers, particularly at this stage because it is that hybrid between on-chain and off-chain components. So a lot of these modders, they're not familiar with the on-chain side. So we make sure that we're taking on all that side and they really just have to have the game system with like their leaderboard scoring, in a sense, set up. So how they kind of get involved there? Well, it's really just reaching out to us and being in our community. And then, yeah, we get them all set up.
1: And is there, are there people, like I'm thinking, are there people besides you to reach out to? Like, do people reach out directly? Because it sounds like it's a sort of almost a stealth mode kind of thing, right? Where people can't just like jump on like OpenSea where you can just trade and sell no matter who you are. So is it to get in touch with you personally, or are there people in these specific domains that people should reach out to? Like, let's say a digital fashion designer, do they reach out directly to you or do you have a kind of a main contact there?
2: Yeah. so we have a team of 15 and any of them are really easy accessible on our Discord, also our Telegram community. And then also on our website, we have sign up forums in a sense where they can go on and give us our details. But yeah, really... It's across any of our social medias. We have a lot of artists reaching out, even on Instagram, Twitter. But the main ones are definitely our Discord community, where that's kind of the heart of everything that we do. So on there, yeah, if anyone joins, we have all these steps laid out, but they can just contact us directly.
0: Right on. Thanks. That's amazing stuff. So I have to ask you. I was looking at your blog and I was perusing the site, and I saw the transparency report. I was wondering if you could highlight that a little bit and tell us what that's about.
2: Yeah, sure. So. We are, you know, as I said, we're really aiming to be this and building out as the infrastructure and protocol layers. And with that and being in Web3, it's also about how do we inject the pillars of Web3 itself, which is all about transparency and kind of this more open nature of things into the core of our business. So we're purely like a native crypto ecosystem, and every month we release a transparency report which just tells our community exactly how we're spending the funds in the treasury itself. So when we did our token launch, the team took 0% of the token. Um, it was really all distributed 10% to the treasury just for maintenance of R&D, and then 90% released to the community through our staking rewards. And so with that, we release yeah every month, just an overview telling, okay, well, this is where the resources and the budget were spent this month. This is the core development that we're looking at and the R&D that we're actually building out. And it's just in pursuit of making sure that we do it the right way because in crypto, there's a lot of opportunity for people to be more interesting with the way that they spend the funds. And that's hard for anyone to track, especially when they don't know about what's going on. Or it's easy to kind of say, well, I used it for this or it got wired to this address, but you can't prove out certain parts of it. And we really want to make sure that the yeah, the way we do it is incredibly transparent it's the right way because we're, we're coming in to build up something that's much bigger than any member of our team it's much bigger than even any member of our community it's really about pioneering for the greater good of what we want to achieve and what we want to see which is about this the metaverse that everyone keeps talking about and so if we don't kind of instill those values within our own business then yeah we're not kind of adhering to to what we keep preaching
0: I'd say that's refreshing to hear. It's all too rare. And I really applaud you for infusing your company and the entire ecosystem with those values. Very, very cool. Thank you. Well, it feels like a good moment to transition to edge quick hitters. What do you guys
1: think? Sounds fun.
0: Yeah,
3: I I can't imagine what Emma Jane's answers are going to be.
1: You know what? She's going to have a good memory for some of the the early questions. So (laughs) more senior guests have not had, but yeah, go ahead.
0: (laughs) Right on. So as a reminder for our listeners, edge quick hitters are a fun, quick way to get to know you a little better. There are 10 questions. We're looking for short single word or few word responses, but feel free to expand. If you get the urge, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, cool. So what is the first thing you ever purchased in your life?
2: That's a really difficult question.
1: But yeah, trust us, it's easier for you, I think, than other people, I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Let me think a little bit more. I actually think it was a surfboard, if I'm not wrong, because, yeah, I grew up in Australia. I'm an avid. I love the beach. I used to be an avid surfer. I surfed, actually, Pipeline in Hawaii when I was 16. So I think I saved up when I was, maybe it was like 9 or 10 for my first surfboard. Pretty sure that's the right answer.
0: Maybe one of the coolest answers we've gotten. (laughs) Gnarly. Um, Nice. Okay. Second, what is the first thing you ever sold in your life?
2: I think it was a, it was on eBay. It was a vinyl record player actually, because I really love music and I used to really like the vinyl records for music. And I think I bought one and then I wanted the other one. So I was doing some arbitrage on <laughs> eBay with different buyers and sellers. So yeah, I sold that one off to buy kind of a better one.
0: Of course you were doing arbitrage at nine or 10 <laughs> years old. Of course. <laughs> okay. Number three, what is the most recent thing you purchased?
2: Yesterday, it was ramen noodles. That's pretty much what I live off at the moment. So it was from Walgreens here in SF, like a ramen noodle. Yeah, bowl.
0: The breakfast of champions for any startup founder. Awesome. Yeah. Number four, what's the most recent thing you sold?
2: I guess this isn't like, this is kind of more abstract, but what I can think of. So I live in a shared house here in, in SF and I'm actually swapping out rooms with someone else on Sunday. So I guess I'm kind of like, quote unquote, selling them through the you know main kind of central to here, my room for another one, if that counts. Okay.
0: Yeah, of course. Number five, what is your most
2: prized possession? That's really hard, actually, because I think maybe I wrote, I actually wrote a book when I was five. I know that kind of sounds weird, but it was all about the metaverse, actually. It was like this whole storybook about someone kind of navigating their way through the metaverse, and I still have that to this day. And I'm really proud of the effort and stuff that I put into that because it's got whole interactive side and everything. And I was actually trying to get that published when I was about eight, but then I let it go and I went off to another adventure. So yeah, that's definitely my most prized possession.
1: The other thing was, do you still have an original Crypto Kitty? Um, talking about prized possessions?
2: No, I actually sold that off last year. You did? Yes, I did. So what I did with that was um, actually in our first auction, we did a collaboration with CryptoKitties Kitties and Dapper Labs where one of our designers made Crypto kitty purses. The purse, it was you know, like a cat purr, but we put it in purses like a funny thing. So with that, we actually gave the buyers Crypto Kitties with it that were represented in the purses. I gave it away and, and sorted off with that.
1: Beautiful.
0: Nice. Okay. Continuing number six, if you could buy anything in the world that is currently for sale, what would it be?
2: You guys really know how to kind of like trip someone up with these.
0: Just looking to get to know you.
2: Yeah. I don't know, actually. I think it would have to be, I love food, actually. Like I really like different foods. So maybe it would have to be like a really tasty meal. I love Japanese. That's my favorite. So maybe some really good sushi, like nigiri. I love nigiri. So some prawn nigiri, I would say. That's what I would buy.
3: That's the answer my girlfriend would probably give as well. Whenever there's a question about what to eat, the default answer is is sushi. You got to come to LA and have some Nobu sometime.
2: We'd love to. Yeah.
1: I also recommend Peru if you haven't been there. Lots of new and interesting cuisine to try out. And I think it was in Peru that I heard, I think it was in Lima, somebody had done a special meal where each of the courses that you ate, they ascended in terms of sea level. Like, you know, wow. you, would, you would eat some animal that was on the low, low sea floor. And that was kind of like one of the first things you eat all the way up to like, I guess, birds or something like that at the end of the mm. the end or the plants that lived in those various areas, whether you're vegetarian or not.
2: But, Very cool. Yeah. No, I Actually, I went to Cusco. I didn't ever go to Lima in prove I went to Cusco about two years ago. I was doing some volunteering there. They have like kind of a school or not, it's not really an orphanage, but it's more of a school with a lot of the the children there, like kind of educating in English. So I did some stuff there, but yeah, I had some very interesting meals and I think I got, yeah, food poisoning, I think a number of times. Because I that, that'll happen places. in Peru. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit then for question seven. If you could pass on one personality trait of yours to the next generation, what would it be?
2: I would say, I don't know how this kind of defined as a personality trait, but I, I think It's kind of a cliche one, but ambition and drive. I think, yeah, a lot of people in the current generations or that, they have kind of, like you said, these society frameworks that they accept of, well, I can't do this because of that. But yeah, seeing more people not accept that because I know the amount of stuff out there that can be achieved and can be created for the better. Yeah, it's just about a mindset change. So definitely that.
0: Right on. Flip side of that, if you could eliminate one personality trait of yours from the next generation, what would that be?
2: I think it's, I'm sometimes a little bit too, like, how do I say, like, not OCD, but just wanting to adhere to certain things or get things out, whether that's deadlines or that. So, more flexibility around that, I would say. Yeah, maybe a bit more chill. Not that I'm not chill, but sometimes I'm like, more, you know, okay, let's get this done and let's hit this. Probably that.
0: Based on what you've accomplished already and what your plans are, I think it may be a double-edged sword, right?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? on. So a little bit easier, question number nine. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast?
2: I had a call with one of my other team members about we're actually releasing next week the first metaverse-focused magazine, which is really exciting. We're bringing together all these voices and content in the space and kind of featuring it like a Times magazine for the metaverse. So I was speaking with one of my team members about that just like kind of the final coordination pieces.
0: That's very cool. Could you share the name or where we can yeah. find it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's called, it hasn't been released yet, but it will be next week. It's going to be called DigiFizzy. So it's all about kind of this hybrid digital physical and focusing on like information about NFTs, Web3, art, music, fashion, just everything within the space because onboarding is such a huge issue. And it's like, well, when you type you know, in on Google search, like anything about these different components, often the quality of information it's really hard to to sort through. So we're really trying to help by having this kind of concentrated place with high quality content across all these different areas. And then, yeah, some really cool like visual interaction as well with that. So that will be next week and it will be live on our website, but we'll be doing like official announcements and everything so people can kind of navigate where to to go to uh, view that.
0: Nice, looking forward to checking that one out. All right, last question, question 10. What are you going to do next after the podcast?
2: So just going back to working, actually... The magazine itself, just, I'm actually designing a lot of the pages myself in Figma and then the developers are going in and building that out. We're doing like a whole custom kind of UX and experience. So I'll just dive, head back into that and kind of putting the final pieces together.
0: Right on. That's fun. Yeah. Well, that's Edge Quick Hitters. Thanks so much for indulging us.
3: Lots of fun. You guys ready to hit some hot topics? What do you say?
1: Let's get into it.
3: Let's do it. A lot going on as usual.
1: All right, first hot topic on our list here. Disaster Girl NFT sells for nearly 500,000. I mean, Gold Rush Classic Viral Images are selling as NFTs for thousands of dollars. What, what experience do you guys have with this one?
3: Well, I think what's really interesting is is this photo came out when she was a young girl and now she's in college and she paid for her college tuition with one NFT. And it's a moment in time that she was famous for People have called her Disaster Girl for years and she built a secret brand, if you will, and she was able to monetize that brand in a really cool way. I think that one's a great example of a high ticket purchase of an NFT personally. What do you think, Emma-Jane?
2: Yeah, I definitely, and I think it's that the other kind of part of this is like memes and how the memes or meme culture fits into NFTs and, and broader crypto. And how I like to think about it is The memes themselves, like when people talk about the metaverse and where it is at, well, it's kind of already here because even, you know, these smallest units of communication like memes, this is like how we've been communicating in a natively digital environment for years. And it does bleed into, okay, well, how do we define the metaverse? What is actually considered valuable? So like you said, this girl, she had this digital identity that was kind of consistent for years and it didn't really mean anything, but now through NFTs, we're able to actually back value behind that. So it's pretty cool stuff.
1: And I had seen this photo before, just for for the listener who isn't familiar with this, but I didn't know that that's what it was known as. But what we see is it's a picture of a fire and a girl kind of looking slyly at the camera, almost as if she lit it. (laughs) That's the meme, if you've probably seen it, but you might not connect it with the name. All right, so next thing on our list, world's first NFT house combo for sale in California. So now we've talked about the $500,000 digital only house, but now we're talking about someone who's getting an NFT along with their house. And Jeff, you're in real estate, what, what are your thoughts about this?
0: Yeah. So this one was so interesting to me. So like so many things, people are, are trying to figure out how to leverage NFTs to make sales or draw interest. So in this one, I think the deal was, a normal home for sale for you know around a million dollars or so in California, Southern California, I think. And, and then they had an artist actually create an entirely digital representation of her own, of that home as well. And they're, so they're selling those you know, two things together. Just one of, I think, thousands or probably infinite number of possibilities for bridging the physical and digital divide. And this is just one real world example of it, I think. Hasn't quite sold yet, so I don't know if that's the, uh, the use case that people will be carrying forward. But yeah, I think it's interesting. I think for, for folks that want to be on the the edge of technology or the edge of NFT. This is the kind of thing that uh, that's going to spark some interest. Way better than giving away a free
1: color TV. Or that barbecue in the backyard. Is that barbecue, stand or Because that's a deal breaker for me. <laughs> I that,
3: you know, I, I think a lot of custom homes are pieces of art. And you know them when you see them and you go in there. And I think architecture is just one of those professions where not everyone gets to enjoy the art maybe you do and the folks that you invite to your home and some homes are featured on the news or on different television shows there's something interesting in the idea of taking this form of art and making it available for display and sharing with folks
2: is all of the pieces so with the house is it just the house that's an nft or is it like everything in the house is also being sold or even like it's separate NFT?
0: I think in this case, it's a rendering of the home, the artist's interpretation of it. And oh, she's selling right.
1: that in conjunction with the home. But but I like where you're going with that thought process. Yeah. There's something... Emma's living cool. on a whole different level. Yeah. This is her house. She would definitely have a, a way more complicated and probably more valuable and fun structure going on there. And layered <laughs> on top of the super world in addition and all these other fun with things. Right?
3: Programmable fashion shows that go through yeah. the house on a monthly basis. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. One thing that's interesting to me about this, a couple of things I want to share. One, I recently bought a house. We did one of those. What do you call it? They just call it like a letter. You send a letter to the seller. Like if you're trying to the negotiation process, to try to get price or whatever you want. We did one of those, a personal letter, they often call it. We did it. We said we have this little family. We have the perfect family, live in this house, added all these different things. And I attached a, a scan of a photo that my three-year-old drew. And I have to say that whole package saved us $9,000.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: And I, I considered selling my three-year-old's drawing as an NFT, right? Because it's already worth nine. Thousand dollars. I mean, imagine where it can go from here. <laughs> yeah, very cool. The the other thing that I find interesting too, there's a one of these you know real estate shows on TV. I don't get a, enough time as I probably would be able to zone into them if I had the time. But it was a woman who dealt in a lot of high end real estate, and the point that she made was that she had some a lot of the, these clients who had these homes, and they didn't even live there. You know, they were super valuable. They would actually probably maintain their value. Somebody else would buy it coming up. And so it's just kind of like almost like an asset, right? It's just the asset in a lot of cases for some people or a work of art that they want to hold or whatever. But interesting thing to me that I really like about NFTs is that they're both ownable and shareable. And one thing that I get frustrated with it's just a human nature. We all have it. We do have this sort of sense of ownership that we want to just have things and keep them. And this is mine and nobody else can have it. And sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And, you know, we're all like that when we're little kids. And then to varying degrees as we grow up, we're willing to share things. But one of the beautiful things about NFTs is you can at the same time own it and allow other people to appreciate it and be a part of it. And that's not something you can always do with that house that's really cool and has all these things in it that you own as an artifact. But let's not shareable mm.
2: Thought I'd yeah. that, and maybe that's where like having you know different parts of the house even broken up into different i don't know NFTs, even different access points for something it all leads into that doesn't it like more shareability
1: i love that yeah i love being us all being able to share. I think it's way more better for everyone. The next thing on the list I think is fascinating, especially from a uh, perspective of someone who's been in the biology world. Digital horses are the talk of the crypto world. So instead of real horses, right, we're breeding digital horses and racing them and owning them. And this is a, a site called Z.run where you can go over there and you can own a digital horse just like you can own a real horse. Are you familiar with the project, Emma Yeah,
2: actually, I think I was Did on you- it clubhouse like two or maybe it was three weeks ago or something. And I just scrolling through, I remember just seeing Z dot run everywhere. So I think that was like one of the first races, but I, I don't know the details of the mechanics, but I know it's something like that. Isn't it breeding and then betting on digital horse races?
1: Yeah. And these horses could use some digital fashion, like yeah. maybe like a cool saddle that we could put on <laughs> Yeah, stirrups, yeah. all these different things.
3: Well, it makes me ask you, Emma Jane, if you're doing these competitions among gamers, Is that in addition to sort of people auctioning off attire, is there a competitive opportunity where you could win attire by winning a competition and you could have different tiers of competition where essentially you earn your sponsorship, you earn, you know, this partnership with Nike for this custom attire that you're featuring on your website because you won some tournament with 5,000 players.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's very much what we're doing. It's all about, you know, how do you kind of have different levels in a sense within the system? So as a player levels up, um, you know, through winning different tournaments or gaining winning streaks, and it's not in a way that it's like that massive insurmountable obstacle, which is really what the industry is about now, but how can you have more democratized access where they can come in in different avenues? That's literally, yeah, exactly what we're doing. So when you kind of reach different levels, then you're able to access, say, more content or more opportunity, whether that's like being kind of having a prize in a sense based on the winning or that's access to more like NFT content that they can actually sell off or broader sponsorships and whatever that looks like in kind of a specific form related to that player. Yeah, that's why I think it is the amazing thing with NFTs is that not only can you bring in these different like business and monetization models that they do have composability around them, but that can all be tracked on chain down to like the most micro level when it comes to say different splits of royalties or profits or winnings across like all the different stakeholders involved so yeah it's definitely you know part of what we're bridging completely into this whole ecosystem is how do you have those different layers of opportunities and different doorways for people to come in and then start just generating value for themselves
3: Hey I've got a business idea for you if you don't have enough on your plate. You gotta find someone on your team that gets really into Zed run. And then you gotta have a, a Zed run horse called Digital X that you guys start racing to cross pollinate awareness of what you're doing.
2: That's a good idea though. Yeah. Okay. I'll, you know, speak with my team about that actually. Because the whole, you know, esports in a sense, that's kind of even what this Z run is, you know, not exactly, but you could classify that as even like esports. It's people kind of betting and, and racing and breeding these horses. It's a whole like gamified system. So I, I think I'll take you up on that.
0: I want to see the real horse too, Digital act yeah. run the Kentucky Derby. And then in post-production, I want that Meta Jacket. I want him to be
1: rocking the Meta Jacket, right?
3: Uh, oh man. That's, horse, that's
1: a great idea. Horse, that's a great horse name. Horse
3: fashion. That's what we're really getting to here because I think there's something in that. There's something well, there. Don't, well, that's, look, don't limit yourself to humans. You think big, let's, we got to make sure the horses are stylish too.
2: Or, you know, we can go one step out, zoo fashion, even something like this. I think you're addressing all animals. That's kind of cool.
1: Got to be included. All animals deserve clothes. This is a perfect transition. We have a couple more. We might as well address them on our, our little list of interesting topics. The board ape yacht club, which maybe you could talk about ape fashion <laughs> in addition to that. We just Jeff and I just heard about this from a friend who was like completely baffled by what's going on there. Have you heard of this, Emma Jane? The Board no, Ape Yacht Club.
3: Okay. So all we know is our friend was on Clubhouse and there's all these rooms with all these people with their profiles set as apes. Talking about apes that they want or apes that they like that other people earned. These four artists that are anonymous created 10,000 different apes of different mm-hmm. rarities. Some have gold, some are more your basic average apes, and people bought them up on OpenSea for like 0.08 ETH, and now they're selling for like 0.5 ETH. And what's really fun about it is if you actually go to the Yacht Club website, you can only get in the bathroom if you have an ape. So if you don't get in the private VIP area, and I think this is just the beginning of what they're doing, but these things sold out in a flash. And now there's all these mix-ups of the apes. There's the Stoned Ape Yacht Club. There's the Board Ape Yacht Club. There's the Ghost Ape Yacht Club. So Open Sea, if you go there over the next few days, you'll just see a lot of apes.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I did actually see some of them. I didn't know the specifics of the project, but I have seen those like ape NFT profile photos as well going around. And it's interesting because even I think it was Lava Labs, they had their meebit sale in a sense for like the continuation of CryptoPunks and their new project. But all of this idea of people being able to have like an individual identity, you know, even if that's a form of an ape and a picture of an ape, yeah, it's, it's something interesting, which then bleeds into like how people want to be self, you know, have self-expression or enabled with self-expression in the metaverse in digital environments. So it's really interesting. I mean, those projects where it's like a one of one identity for someone, they seem to be like absolutely taking off. And then, like you said, you can do like access things and all of these other kind of mechanics on top of that.
1: The last piece of news here from Blockchain News Center crypto investing and wealth tips from the world's largest NFT fund that spends $250,000 a week on their investments. So, this is very interesting. And they're giving, you know, four main tips here, which include narratives that will stand the test of time, artists and platforms that take the conversation rather than just amplify existing conversation. The board Apes would be amplifying existing conversation, I kind of think, right? (laughs) Anti-patterns and then strong business models for enterprises. And that's like, if we did get Charlie Munger involved (laughs) in crypto, it would be on the strong business models for enterprises (laughs) thesis, I think, of investing. Maybe Emma Jane could take about two or three minutes and just explain to us the tail risk options trading, and we could all get a handle on that first here. No, I don't think it's that easy. <laughs> but yeah, any other thoughts on investment theses? Are you investing heavily besides in your personal project? Are you buying up a lot of things? Or is it mostly okay. in your
2: own project? Yeah, I mean, really, I don't have time because, you know, investment, it's not just like, if you're going to do it right, you can't just kind of just like put, you know, five minutes a day, it's really got to be done more comprehensively. But my background is the for the tail risk side. I mean, it is actually more of a trading and financial scope. That's actually how I first came into crypto more strongly. It was actually being part of the hedge fund. And then I became a co-founder. We were based in Sydney and Dubai. And I actually worked with one of the top tail risk hedge fund traders in the world. So it's Bruno Ixel. He used to actually hedge the books at JP Morgan. So throughout the whole financial crisis, he actually was part of the CIO office and he hedged all of their their trades and their books. And then um, there was this whole kind of scandal later. He's known as the London Whale. If you guys might have heard of him, I'm not sure, but he's absolutely brilliant. He's um, based in France now, but he focuses on tail risk hedging, which is all about you don't actually like earn money in a, or kind of profits in a sense within a bull market or when the market's kind of consistent. But as soon as there's these bigger black swan events or spikes, that's where you have your most value come in. And there's only about two or three tail risk hedge funds in the world. And we were the only crypto one at the time when I was a part of that fund there. And the other one is based in Florida, Universal Fund. And last year in the the crash, Mark Mark Spitznagel, he's the the head kind of investment there. So they earned, I think it was 4,000% on their $10 billion fund because of that huge crash it's like, yeah, March or April because of COVID. So crazy stuff like this, but it's more the mindset that I love with tail risk, which is about going against the crowd in a sense when everyone's kind of thinking, oh, you know, it's always going to be this way or nothing can happen. You're just putting in trades or, or investments that hedge against them and provide this like huge convexity within these bigger spikes. So I know that there was someone talking to me a few months ago about like, they were going to be doing high frequency trading on OpenSea for NFT. So I've heard like, Crazy stuff like that. I don't even know what that would consist of. Probably some kind of algorithm picking up, like you know, you said the even the apes they probably even picked up kind of some of these things. But yeah, the tail risk side it very much then bleeds into options contracts, and um, that's like a type of trade strategy and a type of contract that you can, I guess, hedge against where you believe a price of a derivative is going in a sense, or a price. And this price- is
1: similar or the same as to what Nasim. Taleb talks about,
2: right? Exactly. So he pioneers, he's actually the one that kind of really pioneered particularly on the literature side of tail risk hedging of options of black swan events and how they're kind of inevitable markets. I mean, it's incredibly interesting. And myself, when you ask about kind of doing the investment side, well, my brain doesn't really work from, it doesn't work well from like a day trader's perspective. I'm really not good at it. Like I could never sit there and be able to say like, okay, Buy here, sell here, it's going to be like this. It just, I would absolutely fail. But I do have a kind of more of a mindset of being able to set up these strategies that is purely around tail risk. So, how do you look at all these different components in the market and particularly in options contracts, the kind of heavy mathematical side, which I love setting up, yeah, high convexity trades that it's about your, you really have a lot of risk on the line, but it's also very, it's more logical risk, I would say, when you kind of take a step back. It's the
1: probability has been investigated. Yes. And the idea, it kind of is like you actually invest, you may actually lose every day for many, 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 many days, but then just win big one day. But probabilistically, you knew that was going to happen. You just didn't know when. And so it all works out. Right.
2: That's the thing as well. It's It's really about, because you can never predict, no matter what anyone says, you cannot predict where a price is going to go. You can put all the kind of strategies in the world and all the indicators, you know. You
1: tell can, us, what's going to be yeah. the price of Bitcoin in December? <laughs>
2: well, you know, I can't tell you even that, can't exactly, but I, I do believe, all I can say is I believe 100% in what these kind of, some most of these cryptocurrencies stand for and what they're pioneering. And I think that the world is becoming more and more attuned to really what that is and what it's about, which is breaking down walled gardens and kind of, being able to have these points of value exchange in the hands of anyone with a web3 enabled device rather than you know behind some locked central provider. So with that said, I think that it does have a very good upward trajectory that will continue upward, but there will be these, you know, of course volatility or short-term volatility.
0: Well, speaking of investments, if folks want to support the project, is there an opportunity to purchase a token? You guys do have a token, yes.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we have it trading on Uniswap and then also QuickSwap on Matic at the moment. And yeah, so it really, if someone wants to invest, I mean, we didn't do any, as I said, any traditional investments. We, the team didn't take any allocation. There was no VCs or backers behind it. It was really crypto native to have that strong community basis as well. So yeah, if anyone wants to kind of support or be more a part of it really is just going on Uniswap or QuickSwap and then yeah buying up some of the token, which also has governance utility within our ecosystem as well.
0: And what's the name of the token? Mona. So M-O-N-A?
2: M-O-N-A, yeah, exactly.
0: Amazing. And before we close out the show, I think uh, we'd love to let folks know how to follow the project and yourself. uh, Are there particular social handles that they should follow for the latest and greatest?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, digitalx.xyz, that's our site. And on there, we have kind of a list of all our socials. And within that, our Discord is really our most active community. It's where we do a lot of our announcements. We also do, you know, kind of full updates across our blog or our Medium post, which that's like digitalx.medium.com. I think it's some subdomain along that. And then we also have our Twitter, which is at digitalx underscore. And then also like Instagram, Reddit, Twitch, even YouTube socials as well, which they're all on our website.
0: Phenomenal. Well, I, could, I think I speak for everybody when I can say this has been a, an extraordinary conversation. We went in a number of different directions, but wow, you're working on so much. We cannot wait to see where, where you take things from here. Well, I think that is a wrap for us and we've reached the outer limits of NFTs today Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, say something cool, and then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Thanks again, Emma.
2: Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Yeah, really fun.
0: Okay, we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship, so invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. Out, go to iTunes right now, rate us, and say something cool. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole.